ready, Bernie? You know it. All right, let's do it. Welcome, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. I'm Anthony Personati. And I'm Bernie Marini. We are hematology clinical pharmacists, and this is a podcast where we drink and we nerd out about data. Welcome back, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. Bernie, we got a good agenda today. We what is on it? We certainly do. And we've got two uh, guests with us today on the podcast. Mm-hmm. This is our first guest that we've had. We've got Madeline Oaks and Lydia Benitez. So Maddie and Lydia, why don't you two uh, introduce yourselves? Yeah, so I'm Maddie. Um, these people somehow let me stay on after residency and work with them. Um, I practice in the wild, wild west of benign hematology, and I also see a little bit of lymphoma and myeloma. I'm Lydia. I um, came back to work with these two um, crazy people, (laughs) and uh, I practice in outpatient uh, adult leukemia. Excellent. Excellent. We are so excited to have uh, both of you on the podcast. We work with Lydia and Maddie every day. They're our partners in crime on our other Mm -hmm. services. Uh, so this should be a, a fun episode. Sure should be. So let's get to the fun. What <laughs> is everybody drinking today? Uh, Maddie, let's go with you first. Went for a nice local beer from home. Chonk of the Depths. Pretty good. Ooh. What Ooh. kind of beer is it? It's a fruited sour. It's got like vanilla and mango and who knows what else. Holmes is like my favorite brewery here. Um, if anybody doesn't know, Holmes stands for the, the Great Lakes in Michigan. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know, know that, that either. I didn't know that. Seriously? No. I that was because there's homie in there. No, that's how all Michigan kids memorize the Great Lakes. Seriously? Holmes? Yeah. Huron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, Superior. Holmes. Oh, wow. Some we, of us aren't lifers. I know. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because that, that would have been a quiz I failed. Yep. Lydia, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking Jefferson's Reserve, um, small batch bourbon wow. from my roots and not my roots, but my roots for two years in Kentucky. I, it's funny because I actually pulled off a bottle of Jefferson's. I was going to have Jefferson's as well, um, but I decided to pull out an Eagle Rare. Ooh. Yeah, because I, I knew you would like this. Yes. So I was like, what, what would impress Lydia? Because I know you're from, you know, you spent some time in Kentucky. So, yeah, drinking. I, I went back to my roots as well with uh, bourbon. So Eagle that's Rare. A, that's a pretty pricey one, right, uh, right Anthony? The Eagle Rare? It's a decent you know, bourbon. It was, uh, it was actually sponsored. Uh, I think both, you know, my, yep. my drink and your drink were sponsored. Uh, I'll let you kind of introduce our sponsor when you introduce your drink, Bernie. Sure. So I am drinking Surly Axeman IPA, which is an IPA from Minnesota. Um, and the description is it's brewed for a double dry hopped journey to IPA Valhalla. So it's like a Viking IPA and it's amazing. It's like one of the top ranked IPAs in the country. Wow. I was going to say, what does that even mean, Bernie? <laughs> but I'm glad you know. explained it. <laughs> Uh, but these drinks uh, were sponsored by our great friend um, and and colleague uh, Zara Mamujafari at uh, the University of Kansas, and so she wanted to support the podcast. She originally wanted to send us some drinks, but apparently it's illegal to ship alcohol over state lines. <laughs> so we learned that. So we have to buy our own local drinks. That's pretty awesome. awesome. Uh, Eagle Rare, by the way, is like more 
it's easier to find in Michigan than it is, is there? in Kentucky. So like when we came back to Michigan, uh, Jason was like really excited that we no got way. to, you know, find all these. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you're always welcome to come over and have some bourbon with me. <laughs> all right, Bernie. So what, what we got today? What's on the docket? What's on the agenda? What are we going to talk about? All right. So back to the, the business side of things. That was the fun part. Uh, we're going to talk today about oncology stewardship and how to incorporate oncology stewardship into your practice. And who better to talk with us about that than Maddie and Lydia, who've recently uh, had a paper accepted uh, on this topic in Annals of Hematology. So everybody look for that paper to come out soon. Uh, and that's uh, on AML, oncology stewardship. So the first question I have for our, for our guests is, you know, what is oncology stewardship and, and why is this so important? Um, so I guess I can kind of like start and give, you know, my definition. I think a lot of this is a uh, perspective. Each of us has a little bit of a different perspective on it, but I think I would broadly say that um, we've kind of as a group defined it as a set of coordinated strategies that aim at improving the use of chemotherapy agents and biologic agents with the goal of enhancing patient outcomes while reducing toxicities and, of course, including financial toxicity. And Lydia, so this would be uh, very similar to uh, infectious disease stewardship too, right? Is, it, is this something like, because you, you kind of came up with this definition, right? Like, is this a definition that's, you know, widely in the literature and flaunted in the literature? I feel like this this is almost like anti-oncology, right? Uh, but yeah, our, our queen of oncology stewardship. <laughs> founding member (laughs) so i think i think i came up with this definition like 48 hours before my u of m interview um so i was putting together slides and we had talked about doing this at university of kentucky just the the use of uh chemo agents and done a grand round and what we call oncology stewardship but yeah essentially right um just took guidance from like the Society of Healthcare Epidemiology of America who comes up with uh, what ID stewardship definition is and just kind of thinking what makes sense in the context of oncology. Mm-hmm. What, why did you come up with this concept besides, you know, coming to interview us and flaunting off your new definitions? Like what, what prompted <laughs> you to even think of this new nomenclature? I mean, I think like all of us um, have always thought about this and it's just putting it together into one concept um but it's i think as new agents have come up uh you know i remember when i was a resident looking at so many agents for like myeloma for example um the guidelines kind of become like a menu of options right and um just borrowing from our friends and id and i know we all really like id uh just thinking about how to rationally use agents and when is it appropriate to use one thing versus another? When do things enter the market that really shouldn't be used? Um, I think all of those are important things to talk about. And, and it's really important from like an economic standpoint, from a, um, you know, uh, just like um, societal like justice to have access to care perspective. And it's not the most popular topic because it's oncology and we want to make everything available to our patients. But I think it's our job to think about evidence-based medicine and how we use mm-hmm. agents that's so so well said lydia anything to add to that maddie i think when a lot of people hear oncology stewardship 
their minds go directly to financial toxicity. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's a huge part of it. We have oncology drugs increasing out of proportion to anything else. Um, where else do you have drugs coming out that are three times more expensive than any other drug and they have no additional benefit? But I think that's such a small part of it. And it's never the first thing on my mind. It's like the number 10 reason why I wouldn't use an agent. Yeah. So you think about, you know, efficacy and safety first. And I mean, that's the same concept in, in other stewardship, too, as you think about what is the best agent for this patient? And I think most people would ask, well, why not just look at the guidelines, right? You know, isn't that what guidelines are for? But our guidelines are are not good, right? They list everything. Yeah, and I think it's like really dangerous, right? The path that we're on of mm-hmm. um, where new standards, because everything, every time something goes on a guideline, it becomes a new standard. And I think when you have new standards based on poor data, mm-hmm. it kind of reinforces concepts that... Um, you know, even economic concepts of like the inelastic, uh, you know, demand of of, um, of the price of, of oncology agents. And then that results in increased cost of care without additional benefit. And it really isn't improving, just adding new things to guidelines. It isn't improving outcomes for patients. So I think it's important to think about what it is that you're going to endorse using uh, from an economic perspective, but also from truly like our goal is to treat patients better and to be able to treat more patients well, right? Yeah, so we have a really, really, really long way to go um, in oncology <laughs> stewardship, it seems like, right? Like we are we are probably decades behind infectious disease and, and stewardship, right? Um, but I think, uh, at least from our group, we've uh, instituted a variety of kind of stewardship interventions uh, you know, Bernie, I know you've been on multiple podcasts about your, you know, anti-vixios rhetoric. <laughs> so that's obviously one example of stewardship, right? So do you want to, do, do we want to go yeah. through a couple of examples of, um, you know, from your paper, Lydia and Maddie, um, in AML, and we can certainly divert and go to other disease states to give some examples, but just to give the audience some idea of what we're actually trying to articulate in some case examples. Yeah. And I think, you know, we think of this as like a a huge, big concept, but like, what can you do actionable to change things? Like, can you actually make an impact and make sure that patients at your institution are getting the right therapy? And I think that's what we did with Vixios. But I think everybody thinks that this drug, you know, just came out and Bernie was like, I hate this drug. We're never using it, period. That's the end of the story. But it's much more complicated than that. Um, I think Lydia, Anthony, you guys remember when we had this trial open uh, at Michigan and we were enrolling patients on trial and having that trial at our center made us ask ourselves, what is the best therapy for patients with secondary AML? You know, what should we be doing for these patients? What's the best way to get them to transplant as soon as possible? And so we had identified FLAG as our sort of optimal homegrown regimen, and that was our standard of care at the time. And so when the Vixios data was published and when any data is published in oncology, we always ask ourselves, what is our own standard of care? And is the control arm equal to what we're doing in clinical practice? And I think if you look at the Vixios data, so just you know, very briefly, Vixios is liposomal, donorubicin, and cytarabine. It was compared in a phase three trial uh, to seven plus three in patients with secondary AML. 
And the control arm was seven plus three with Donnarubis and Dost at 60 per meter squared, which you could argue in the younger secondary AMLs maybe wasn't optimal, but most of these patients were on the older side. I think some, some issues with the trial, in consolidation, patients in the control arm received five plus two consolidation. And we know that for fit AML patients, that is not um, our current standard of care. And if you look at outcomes in that control arm, they're significantly worse than every published result of seven plus three in this population, possibly because of their, their poor comparator arm and their, and their poor use of consolidation therapy there. And so we looked at our own outcomes with what we were doing in practice. And I would encourage everybody to do this. You know, Before you had this drug, what did you do? What did your outcomes look like? And our outcomes with FLAG just absolutely blew Vixios out of the water in terms of safety with very similar efficacy. And so we had no reason to change therapy. And so we said, we're not gonna use this new, expensive, highly toxic drug. We're gonna use what our current standard of care is. And it's not just because of the flaws in the trial, it's also because we looked at our own data and we said, you know, this isn't meeting our own standards. And so we need to stick with what our current standard of care is. And so if your current standard of care is seven plus three and five plus two consolidation and maybe not taking patients to transplant, then maybe Vixios is for you. But if that's not your standard, then you really need to question whether or not you should use that drug. That was a long rant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think everybody um, needs to take a drink after that one. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Cheers to not using Vixio. <laughs> so I, I guess that was just one example of oncology stewardship and one drug that we said, you know, this data doesn't really stand up. You know, there's a lot of flaws with this data. There's a lot of toxicities with this agent. Our goal is to get these patients to transplant. And we have better alternatives in HMA VEN and or flag chemotherapy. So that we instituted sort of our standard of care across our leukemia patients, this is what we're gonna do for patients. And we sort of have our own internal institutional approach to treating AML. Um, and we have other examples in AML too. So maybe maybe Maddie can talk about, uh, you know, another example from her paper. Talk about gemtuzumab, azogamycin, or GO. Um, I think going through the whole FDA approval process for this drug very briefly, I think gives a good snapshot of why you should or should not ever use this drug. Um, so gemtuzumab received accelerated FDA approval back in May of 2000 in older adults, age above 60, who had relapsed AML and who were not candidates for cytotoxic chemotherapy. In phase two trials, we saw an overall response rate of about 30%. Subsequently, in June of 2010, the manufacturer voluntarily removed this drug from the market. And that's because of this phase three confirmatory data, which included patients who were newly diagnosed age 18 to 60, and it randomized them to seven plus three with or without gemtuzumab. Not only did they find absolutely no difference in response rates, they found a higher instance of fatal toxicity with gemtuzumab, like 17 deaths with gemtuzumab versus four deaths with 7 plus 3 alone in the first 30 days. And then we get to September 2017, and the FDA reapproves gemtuzumab. What new data did we have in this interim? Arguably none. Um, we have a meta-analysis of five randomized trials. 
And when they look at all patients, no difference in survival between those who did and did not receive gemtuzumab. But we love a good subgroup analysis, and that subgroup analysis found that specifically those who had favorable risk cytogenetics had a survival benefit with gemtuzumab. We could spend time going through all of the many issues with those randomized trials, but I think most significantly, only one of those five studies actually demonstrated a survival benefit in patients with favorable risk cytogenetics and that was alpha 0701. How many favorable risk cytogenetic patients were in that study? A whopping nine. Oh God. Life-changing, <laughs> right? But it gets better. Here's the real kicker. In the final analysis, long-term analysis, survival benefit is lost. But if you read the fine print, due to contractual arrangements with the manufacturer, the long-term analysis was not included in the meta-analysis. Sus. Yeah, very. I'm, you sound like, I like that, sus. It sounds like my kids. Um, <laughs> it's pretty mid-data. Uh, I feel like yeah, I don't so, have any, like, reference to these, uh, like, uh, pop, pop, pop culture reference to these <laughs> things that Maddie is using. No, but I just, down for all of us. what I think is crazy is, like, I always wonder, you know, there's so many people using gemtuzumab, like it mm -hmm. is their standard of care. Mm -hmm. And I always want to be like, why? Like, what data right. are you basing this on? And they're like, well, it's in the guidelines. And yes. I think this and is like an example where the guidelines say one thing, but they're not based on the right data. And the NCCN says go plus seven plus three is preferred in our favorable risk patients. Mm -hmm. So you are taking the patients with the most favorable outcomes and giving them a drug with no survival benefit that increases toxicity, makes them feel worse, that definitely yeah. increases financial toxicity. And Maddie, exactly. in, the, in the alpha trial, like just similar to like the Vixios data where the control group maybe wasn't what we do in the US, what was the control group in the alpha study? In the alpha study, um, it was similar um, with the seven plus three and the yeah. five plus two. So again, not what we're doing. And another issue was, um, and other studies included, the number of consolidation cycles with HIDAC um, was not uh, what our current standard is. Right. And it wasn't even HIDAC, right? It was intermediate, intermediate dose, dose, which yeah. We've, yeah. we've been preaching since the 90s um, that all of our core binding factors Young, should get fit. the max amount yeah. of high dose consolidation, max doses for, you know, as many cycles as they can possibly tolerate, right? So... And again, if you pull data for your own core binding factors mm -hmm. or just look in the literature for core binding factors treated with 90 of Dono and current standard of care, high dose cytarabine consolidation, they do pretty damn well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point also because we always fixate on the high DAC, but you give core binding factor patients any more intensive therapy, uh, you're going to have better outcomes. So 90 is likely better than, than the 60 that they used. Um, so I, I guess, let me ask you guys this. So uh, what do you feel more comfortable with uh, changing your practice based off of a phase three with a terrible comparator like Vixios or changing your practice based off of a meta-analysis, a not even, not even a randomized controlled trial, just a meta-analysis of a bunch of, you know, essentially it's just a bunch of phase, you know, it might be phase threes, but you're taking patient level data that are essentially just from one arm, right? And then you're throwing them all into, you know, an analysis and, you know, it's not even a randomized controlled trial. 
So which, which one do you think is worse? I mean, I think the Go, the Go uh, story makes Vixios look like a Fine. gold standard right? trial. Right? Like, yeah, but, but, but here, everybody just shits on Vixios, right? <laughs> and, and, and I agree, they should. They should. It was a terribly conducted study. Um, horrible comparator arm, taking patients to transplant with active disease and with 3 plus 7, and we just rip on Vixios but nobody rips on gemtuzumab. And yeah. I agree with your point, Lydia. It is much worse data than the Vixios. These are much worse comparator arms than Vixios for our core binding factor. Uh, you could argue, okay, fine, it's appropriate for intermediate risk, but look at the intermediate risk. Barely any difference when you add gemtuzumab. And it wasn't, it, it may be okay from a, a chemo perspective what they're given in these trials, but from a transplant perspective, absolutely not, because most of these didn't take them to transplant. We are taking many of our intermediate risk patients to transplant. Mm -hmm. You can argue that, but it is mm -hmm. still the standard of care for many people. So yeah, just wanted to bring that up because I think Vixius gets a lot of heat, mainly because of you, Bertie. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I think a lot of people give Vixios heat and it should, again, but gemtuzumab, uh, it should probably get a lot more heat than it gets. Yeah, yeah. I think probably the fact that gemtuzumab was approved and used, I think people love their ends of ones, right? Mm -hmm. And so even when the preponderance of the data, as Maddie like summarized, does not show benefit, people just have that like, oh, but it worked, or you know, it was so novel at the time, and they they are excited to see it reintroduced, but it really is not. It doesn't merit its use. It's like merely hypothetical, the idea of using it in a patient population. Mm -hmm. I mean, it almost has the same amount of data as like Donna versus Ida, right? Like meta-analyses data, yep. kind of flawed studies. But not every, not everyone across the country is like, you must use Ida Rubicin instead of Donna. Guess what? Because nobody cares. But Gemtuzumab <laughs> sounds cool. And so everyone's like, yes, let's add Gemtuzumab. We're doing something. <laughs> even though they're probably just adding toxicity because mm -hmm. it sounds cool. Yep, totally. So those are two really good examples. Lydia, you got an example for us? Yeah, and you know, just kind of as a thought, kind of one of the things that Bernie said is like, what things can you do in your institution? Um, I think I always think of like five things or so that you can do and like one of them is encourage rational use of medications and palliative care services. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, that when you talk about gemtuzumab, it always runs like it right is it rational to use it based on the data um and i think you know the example that i i'm going to use is the example of oral aza and that's another example of really asking yourself is it rational to do this um mm -hmm. especially like how it was done in the trial um so the interesting with, thing with oral aza um you know just kind of the, the to review so oral acetidine um was of course um you know, we have our data with with intravenous acetidine and it has been uh, studied in the in the maintenance setting um shown not to be efficacious um but uh there is an oral uh agent that was recently approved um you know it has about 11 percent bioavailability compared to the iv product but um it was uh compared to placebo in patients uh over the age of uh, 55 in the Quasar AML, AML001 trial, where essentially they took patients that had received induction plus or minus consolidation and were 
quote unquote ineligible for allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, and they gave him either oral ASA or placebo, and then they looked at primary endpoint of overall survival. And so when you read the study, you know, kind of on the surface, you're like, oh my God, this drug improves overall survival. Like that is the endpoint that we That's should care about, right? Like when you going back to your podcast number one, you're talking about surrogate <laughs> endpoints and AML, like overall survival. So hey, this trial is great. But you know, there's uh, you can definitely make a trial be what predetermine it to have the endpoint that you want it to have. I think this is a good example. Um, so I think you know some important things to pay, pay attention to starts with inclusion criteria, right? Who do you include in this trial? So they randomized um, patients at a maximum of 90 days from a CR uh, or CRI in the marrow. So if you think about that, right, um, you think about a patient that has intermediate risk um, or unfavorable risk um, AML and can't go to transplant, our standard is to give them three to four cycles of consolidation, right? So if you're randomizing within 90 days, guess what? You're not finishing consolidation. So you can't really call something maintenance if you haven't even finished consolidation, right? Um, and then when you look at the data, actually, and there was an abstract um, presented at ASH in 2020 by Wayne colleagues, what they found was that when you look at the number of consolidations, uh, the majority of patients didn't have, had, you know, zero or one cycle of consolidation. But then when you look at the patients that had two or three um, cycles of consolidation, that survival benefit was lost, um, which shouldn't shock anyone, right? Because there's a reason we do three to four cycles of consolidation. Um, but I think there's also other issues with the trial. They, you know, back to this ineligibility for transplant. Well, why are patients ineligible for transplant? The median age was 65. So half the patients were between the ages of 55 and 65, but they were ineligible for transplant due to age. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, that's, that's a little bit odd. Um, and then again, you know, there's also the issue of what did they do to patients when they uh, were found to relapse. And I think when you're looking at maintenance strategies in a disease that isn't curable, right? Um, because you're, you're saying they can't go to transplant, then you got to look at what happened when those patients when those patients relapse, and essentially what happened in this trial is if you didn't have more than 15% blasts, you could be randomized to receive placebo upon relapse. Um, ethical. Yeah. And so when you think about it, right, it's like, what would, what would I recommend for my parents? What would I recommend for my grandparents? Um, definitely not <laughs> going on this trial. <laughs> I would recommend my grandparent to fire their hematologist. That's what I would tell them. <laughs> If they are literally enrolling their patient on a placebo when they have, you know, up to 15% blasts. Yeah. So, it, you know, overall, when you look at all of this data, it really makes you question how this trial made it through to enrolling patients, right? Um, because when you kind of review the fine print, it doesn't seem like a trial that should have even occurred. But now that it has occurred and you have an FDA-approved agent that is in the guidelines certainly doesn't seem rational to use it or in the best interest of patients, right? Um, and of course, you know, when you think about um, things like tolerability, you know, obviously being on treatment is less tolerable than not being on treatment. And so that's one of the things that I think I find most frustrating about the trial is they talk about, well, patients didn't do worse with regards to quality of life. Um, 
But that's like a composite endpoint. And really, when you look at these things, nobody really understands it. But when you break down each one of the symptoms that patients were experiencing, patients were not feeling better. You know, they, they had a fair amount of GI toxicity, more transfusion dependence, things that don't seem to improve quality of life. Again, we have to think about the fact that we're not curing these patients. So what is best for them is to feel well, not need transfusions, be able to be at home, spend their money not buying drugs, right, but using it for other things. So it just, it seems kind of, to, to be completely honest, it seems mean to do this to a patient. <laughs> That's very well said. Yeah, I mean, I always have to think with this study, either there is something different about this patient population or there is something different about the hematologist treating these patients on this protocol, right? Because it's like, mm -hmm. I would never treat these patients the way they treated them, both from a control arm, you know, treating with placebo, but also like their post-protocol therapy. Who in the mm -hmm. world is going to be treating with some of the post-protocol therapy that they had? And obviously, you know, we've asked what was the post-protocol therapy in our New England Journal letter, and they won't tell us. Um, but we all know what, what the post-protocol therapy is. It was not appropriate therapy for a large majority of patients. So you have to wonder, like, was it something different about these patients that, you know what, maybe they just couldn't get additional therapy? I don't know. Uh, or is it, you know, is it, you know, the people that are treating that? Do they, you know, are they not yeah. optimally treating their patients? I don't know. And, and then you end up getting an overall survival benefit. And I think with all these studies, they have one common theme, and that is under-treatment. You're either under-treating in your induction, you're either under-treating in your consolidation chemotherapy, or you're under-treating with not sending patients to transplant. So it's it's very easy to identify a flawed study by just comparing it to, is this what I would do? Oh, are we under-treating? Is this my standard of care? No, bam, that's just, it's, it's as easy as that. So like, why, why can't we do that in practice? Why can't we call that out more often? Mm -hmm. I think too, when you talk about post-protocol therapy, I don't think this trial answers my real question, which is, is treating patients earlier with an HMA exactly. better? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. Hit the yeah. damn nail on the head right there, Maddie. Yep. It, it, and this study is like the perfect example of like, you have to go beyond those initial results. Like you have mm -hmm. to dig deeper. Cause like, like Lydia, you mm -hmm. said on the surface trial, you know, endpoint was overall survival. It improved overall survival. What else can we ask for? Well, you, when you really dig deep into it, the control arm was inappropriately treated uh, because of that post-protocol therapy or <laughs> complete lack of consolidation, which mm -hmm. we've known has been standard of care since like the 1980s. Okay, mm -hmm. this was this is basically comparing nothing to giving something, which again they already studied that in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So but, this but is people this always is argue. Oh, but we don't know how many cycles of HIDAC to give. We don't know how well, we know the proper it's not zero. dose is. <laughs> exactly. We know it's not zero. Or one. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think I, I, I get those, like, counter arguments, but it's, it's like, I think the reason why there's suboptimal consolidation on this study is the urge to enroll people on a trial, right? Yeah. Every, every treating oncologist who enrolls in trials has a minor conflict of interest. They mm -hmm. want to enroll patients on trials, because that's how we're evaluated. We're evaluated on our research. And if you're not doing good research and you're not enrolling patients on trials, you're not doing a good job, right? But this trial is arguably unethical in trying to get people on maintenance prior to completing adequate consolidation therapy. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. unethical. And I think, you know, like 
back to like what happened post protocol. I think one of the things that also bothers me about this study, there's so many we could do like a whole podcast on this, but how many patients went to transplant on in this study, right? They're ineligible for transplant yet like <laughs> about 10% of the patients in each arm went to transplant and yeah. a bunch of them went to transplant after relapse. So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, so you for the purposes of enrolling them in this trial, like to your point, right, Bernie, right. of the pressure to enroll someone, I call mm -hmm. them ineligible. But then when push comes to shove, gonna I am going to transplant them. Yeah, so it's it's kind of, it's so it's interesting. It's misleading. It's very yes. misleading. So I, I think this is a great example. And, and I have to say, these examples and these things where, you know, we're encouraging people to question, is this my standard of care? Did people get appropriately treated in the control arm? You know, these are all examples that we've just found in AML, right? And there are so many other disease states where this can apply and is just as impactful, um, you know, many other examples. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could easily think about in DLBCL, all these new mm -hmm. drugs, never had a good comparator, <laughs> mostly phase twos, right? You could, I mean, you know, Bernie's 10-year-old daughter could pick out a, a poor <laughs> comparator group, honestly. It's not She's that nine. hard. Oh, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, DLBCL, ALL, you know, we talked about our Winnie at, at nauseum on our previous episodes and how mm -hmm. inappropriately we're using that. That's stewardship. When you're inappropriately using a drug, even though it's an effective drug, even though it's a drug that we should be using, if you're using it in the wrong setting, that is not stewardship. Um, CLL, CLL, oh my God, don't even get me started on CLL. God, these drugs are so expensive and... You know, of course, we're trying to combine them all now, too, which obviously is not great for from an oncologic stewardship perspective, especially when we don't even know if they're any better um, combined versus sequencing. But, you know, and we've also never really had an opportunity to study our standard of care front lines of BTK inhibitor versus, you know, venetoclaxobinutuzumab. So we have no idea even how to use our therapies because of how things are studied. Um, but uh, we do know that we have two very, very effective strategies. BCL2 inhibitor or uh, BTK inhibitor, which one's more expensive? It's the continuous nonstop, you know, BTK inhibitor that you're going to be on therapy for six, seven years, right? So you're talking about, you know, probably $150,000 per year. At the end of it, you're, you're spending millions of dollars on your BTK inhibitor versus venetoclax. You've got a finite therapy. You're going to be off therapy for four or five. We don't know how many long years. So you're looking at a therapy that costs millions of dollars versus another therapy that costs, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, but still as a, as a, you know, a, a medical community, we're not going immediately to uh, the least expensive, most cost-effective mm -hmm. therapy, right? We're still using other therapies, very effective therapies, very safe therapies, but if they're, you know, efficacious safety is equal-ish, you know, we have no idea, but they're, they're for all intents and purposes, they're equal enough. The cost blows it out of the water. Why are we still using uh, BTK inhibitors in, in front line? And sure, yes, you could argue P53, you could argue, you know, there's subsets, but our, the market share should not be like, you know, 60% abrutinib, right? Um, so that's a perfect example in CLL. And then even within the BTK inhibitor class, um, uh, are you guys aware, what, what is the most expensive BTK inhibitor? Just throwing it out there. Maddie, you're, you're, you're kind of... Uh, you're, this is outside of your world. So you got a first generation of brutinib. Brutinib is the cheapest. I can tell you that much. Oh yeah. Right. You think so? No. I think so. No, exactly. no? That's, you fell right into my trap. That's exactly <laughs> what I want you to think. 
So Abrutinib is first generation, been on the market for, you know, I don't know, almost 10 years now. Um, and you got second generations, uh, Zanibrutinib, Calibrutinib. Which one's most expensive? You would think the newer, you know, fancier one. It's not. It's Abrutinib. Why are we still using Abrutinib when the other ones are probably safer, equally effective, but less expensive? Our, our, our system is rigged, right? A lot of it comes down to how uh, our healthcare is reimbursed. Mm -hmm. Which one do you think you get paid more as an institution, as a specialty pharmacy? Well, the one that costs more. Um, so, so that's, you know, another part of oncologic stewardship that goes beyond just, you know, picking therapies uh, based off of safety and efficacy. A lot of people are picking therapies because it's going to bring your institution, your specialty pharmacy, uh, the, most, um, the most profit. So we, we definitely have a, a rigged system. So I guess that brings us into, you know, some thoughts on, some of the barriers, like how do we, how do we implement change when the system is sort of set up for us to use the more expensive drug? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I think of is first education. Um, our physicians, you know, sometimes, and we're, I'm very lucky to work in a place where most physicians know a lot more about this than, than what I would say the, the general knowledge is. But a lot of times people think, you know, a MSL or a drug rep comes in and says, oh, don't worry about how expensive the drug is. Your patient can get it for free because we have all these whatever, you know, copay mm -hmm. cards, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? In CLS perfect example, the majority of patients are, are Medicare. You know, they're older patients. It's a disease where the median age is in the 70s. Well, our patients can't benefit from that. And coinsurance and copayments on BTK inhibitors is 20% of the copay. So it's, it's a really high cost for patients. Patients are not going to tell you when they can't afford something. They're just going to stop taking it. And when you look at the data on adherence and CLL, it's very, very low, um, especially in patients who are older, have comorbidities. And part of it is probably comes down to cost and people are not going to, you know, tell their physicians that they can't pay for their medications. Um, so I think having the discussion, like not shying away from the discussions relating to the cost is important um, because I think when physicians know about cost, they can make decisions that make changes. You know, in the example of like Peter Bach, you know, an MSK and being very vocal about, we would not pay twice as much for a drug that is equally um, efficacious. And then what happens, you know, Sanofi drops the price on Sibifilverset, like just like that, because an institution says they're not going to use it. I think we need to understand the power that we have to shape the cost of drugs, you know? So not to focus too much on cost, but I think it's important in settings like CLL um, to, to say that, that empower providers and pharmacists who help providers pick therapies that you can make a difference and you, you just need to be vocal about it. So it sounds like a major barrier is just lack of education, right? Like to your point, Maddie, you had no idea that a, a, a older generation BTK inhibitor was was the most expensive now and so i i i can guarantee you if i surveyed you know all of our hematologists they would have no idea either i think it's just we just don't we don't um we, we don't make available the cost uh to everybody we have no idea what the heck we're doing how much things cost um also like even testing like i, I know we're talking a lot about drugs but even a lot of the tests that we send off are thousands of dollars if not even more tens of thousands of dollars over a long period of time, years, um, like, you know, MRD testing and CLL, right? Those are thousand dollar tests that, 
uh, probably are going to impact the patient absolutely nothing. At least we shouldn't be, you know, changing therapy based off of off of that. So I think it, it definitely goes beyond just um, cost, uh, or sorry, just just drugs. It's the cost of everything. Yeah, and I, and I think the cost is not transparent, and that's what's challenging totally. too. Yeah. Is nobody knows, you know, what's happening, and and you do get these representatives and people that say, you know, don't worry about the cost of this. Like, we'll give you an extra whatever, uh, mm-hmm. you know, exorbitant fee thing because you spent so much money on that oncology patient. So don't even worry about it. But I, I think that the fact that it's not transparent is bad. I also think, you know, in oncology and in leukemias and hematology, you know, we've been starved for better drugs. Mm-hmm. And so anytime we see a marginal gain, which might be a you know, not a true gain, but just a fact of a poor study design, we jump over that because we get excited because we're humans, right? We want to see the new cool thing be better for patients. And I think it's hard to ignore that people get excited about the new shiny toy, but we have to be rational. We have to think about, you know, is this truly better for my patient or does it just sound cool? And I want to <laughs> do the newest, coolest thing because I was in the trial and you know, this is my baby and I want it to succeed. Everybody has a little bit of a conflict of interest there. And it's not to say that every intervention is poor, right? You know, some new agents are improving outcomes. You know, I think venetoclax is improving outcomes in leukemia. I think expanding it to other populations, maybe it's not the greatest, but in, in Anthony said in CLL, we've made great strides there, but we can learn from these things and not just blindly accept every new agent that gets added to the guidelines because i think there's a few very vocal voices that are guiding what we do in different disease states and are putting out these guidelines and it's not truly reflective of what the data shows and what we should be doing yeah and i think you know that is a, a good point in the context also of how we use drugs institutionally and i think one of the most frustrating things that i've encountered is PNT structure, mm-hmm. right? I think um, just the thought of, I remember the first time I went to PNT to present a drug outside the context, because one of the things that I've always thought about with oncology stewardship is that you should do it in an objective setting. Mm-hmm. You have no patient that has requested it yet. You're strictly evaluating the data in an objective fashion um, and talking about when you should use it, right? And I remember presenting a drug for Harry cell and being like, yeah, I don't think we should use this or we shouldn't add it to formulary or XYZ. And the the biggest, you know, and, and it's it's a recommendation that I had made that all of my leukemia physicians agreed with. But then when I got to PNT, all of a sudden they're like, well, what? No, you can't not approve a drug. We don't do that. We have to add everything. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it's kind of insane that because of these structures that we have in place at hospitals that quite frankly, are archaic, right? Because now, like, you can't expect uh, someone at an administrative level in, in pharmacy or medicine to have knowledge of all the drugs in all of the disease states, to have knowledge about a minute disease state like Harry cell. And, and for them to be the person that tells you yay or nay, um, mm-hmm. it, it seems kind of absurd and honestly contradictory to the efforts of treating patients appropriately. I wonder how many other PNTs out there actually reject drugs. Yeah. Even at our institution, it's rare. Right. 
Well, because because the argument is, well, if we don't approve it, they're just going to go down the street and get yeah. it somewhere We're gonna else. We're going to lose right? money. We're going to lose yep. money. They'll get it at the down the street hospital. Yep. But we we reject drugs for ID all the time. We just don't right. reject them for oncology. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. Totally. So, Lydia, in that case example, um, how did you overcome that barrier? Did were you did you end up being successful, or did you have to add that agent to formulary? That's a great question. I mean, I think that. I think ultimately it's kind of like a grassroots movement, right? Like <laughs> the, uh, the institutions like, yeah, we're going to approve it. We're going to add it to formulary. And ultimately what I ended up realizing is that thankfully because of the rapport that we've built with our physicians and the fact that it is a, not just pharmacy saying we shouldn't use it, but all of us as a group discussing the data <laughs> and agreeing to not use it, even though it's on formulary, we rarely use it. Right. And there's so many examples like Tagrax for BPDCN yeah. is another great example where, yeah, we added the formulary, but do we use it? Not really. Um, you know, and, and things like that. I think it's sometimes unfortunate that especially us, we're all interested in oncology stewardship. We work at an institution where we could make an example of like, this is the structure of stewardship. Sometimes you have to go beyond just what like, PNT, like guideline formulary status and just like common sense, how you're actually going to use drugs day to day, right? Like the, the build, the rapport you build with physicians and, mm-hmm. and the conversations you have with them and, and kind of this unspoken pathway or, or unwritten pathway that you have mm-hmm. isn't like nice and shiny in the department of pharmacy website, but, and stamped <laughs> by 20 people, but right. it's what we do, Right. Yeah, you know, places where I've found to be a little bit more successful is if you have alternatives. So like for the Vixios, we had Flag and other institutions, they have HMA Ven, right? So you have an alternative, you can easily combat that. Tagrax, um, that one we have CHOP or Hyper-CVAD, right? Like Mm -hmm. those disease melts away with CHOP to transplant. So when you have alternatives, it's a lot easier. But when you, you know, when you're trying to pitch an idea of, hey, we shouldn't use this drug. And then you're like, okay, well, what are you going to treat these patients with? And you're like, well, I I don't know. That's where it's a little bit more challenging. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's where we just rely upon our sort of instincts of, well, this was a very bad comparator. I honestly don't know if this drug is any better than what this other standard is. We're just going to continue to use the standard. I think that part is a lot harder for a lot of people to stomach and hence why they still use, you know, gemtuzumab. Yeah, and I guess what I, what I would say is to encourage people to then collect data on that. Because, yes. you know, you can always collect data and test your hypothesis, right? So we've looked at um, time to death when we give people gemtuzumab, for example, in like a relapse refractory relapse, setting because yeah. we don't have any, anything else. And, right, it's like less than a month. So then you can take that data back and be like, hey, did this really improve outcomes? No. Okay, let's move on, right? Mm-hmm. So where do we go from here? You know, what do we do moving forward? How do we expand oncology stewardship across the country, across the globe? Because, you know, I think we're making an impact at a local level. And I think this is an idea that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's common sense. I mean, I think part of it is things like this, right? Um, You guys having this forum to discuss um, these thoughts that I'm sure people across the country are having, um, you know, as much as I joke about my dislike of Twitter, um, (laughs) it's, it, you know, you do see that you're not alone in thinking that 
a drug doesn't merit being approved or shouldn't be used. And I think that that's really important because when you're seeing a national guideline that says to do something, seeing that a lot of people are questioning it really makes you understand you're not alone in thinking that this is not, you know, appropriate or that this is wrong. Um, so in a way, I think social media and um, forums like this are extremely important, even sometimes more important than other aspects like, you know, developing institutional guidelines and, and national guidelines, which are also extremely important and things like, you know, publishing, publishing papers, mm -hmm. uh, opinion and review articles and uh, multi-center research, you know, all of it. It's, it's coordinated strategies, right? That's the <laughs> definition. Yeah, I, think I think to your point, talking about it, I mean, if you look at Zaltrap, they screamed it from the rooftops and said, we're not dealing with this drug. They went into the New York Times. Um, I think talking about it is like the overarching concept. People are afraid, though, I feel like. I feel like when you talk to people, they don't want to speak out against drug companies or speak out against the newest drug because, you know, what if that hinders their ability to get a new study at their institution or some other benefit from a company like the whole system is just broken um i i, I honestly don't know i don't know the answer mm -hmm. yeah well, it's, a good, it's a good point bernie because i mean we've been written off by a lot of people we oh, yeah. always get contacted by people certain hate us. companies that we won't uh, name but i mean they don't contact us anymore unless it's like to say hey you said this You're and this wrong. is wrong on your podcast <laughs> but other than that we don't so they don't contact us uh. but us you know i, I think here. at the end of the day like I, I feel like a lot of it for me, too, is a social justice thing. Like, yes. you know, in terms of, like, we're out there, like, people outside of the U.S. are looking at NCCN mm -hmm. to decide how they're going to treat their patients. And when you have in there things like, you know, and, and I'm not, I mean, a, this is not an example that's probably in the guidelines, but things that, like, bother me, like ALL, right? Like, oh, let's give blend plus, I know plus blah, 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 then oh, it's like, okay, what about what happens in outside of the United States, you know, mm -hmm. and places like South America, where we can't do all of those things. And guess what, you don't even really need to do all those things. So you're sending the wrong message. And so I guess, I don't know where you go in terms of necessarily impacting the trial, the way that trials are going. But I do know that it, I think we are making a difference in, 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 voicing this opinion because it's important for people inside and outside of the United States to understand that this is not guidelines are flawed, right? And that you're not wrong if you want to give your ALL flag compared to, you know, in, in third relapse versus inotuzumab because, mm -hmm. hey, guess what? Look at the study, you know, and things like that. So I, I think like there's, there's an aspect of that that is still important, even if you can't change the world in one day yeah, I mean, not I, even I, just like outside the united states i mean think of community hospitals yeah. who don't have yep. the resources that a large academic medical center does yep totally i think it's very comforting like to your point lydia it's very comforting when you hear other people having the same viewpoints as you of i i don't feel i should be using this drug and so you don't feel like you have to FOMO into using the <laughs> brand new fancy drug right so i think we just need to talk more about things like that, you know, get, you know, whatever the platform is, we just have to talk more about being okay with not using the latest, greatest and fanciest, but it's not the greatest, the latest, fanciest uh, drug. So I agree. Maybe, and Maddie, great point need, about community. 
Maybe we need our own guidelines. You know, maybe we need there our own go. oncology stewardship focused guidelines that aren't focused on let's add everything so that mm-hmm. everything gets paid for, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not thinking about safety and efficacy first. They're thinking about money first. And that's yep. sort of the opposite concept of oncology stewardship. Correct. And I think maybe, what's challenging if you do create those guidelines is how do you get people with no conflicts of interest yeah. to mm-hmm. sit on said guidelines? Yep. That's yep. the current then, problem with the guidelines. Yep. <laughs> And then how do you exactly. how do you get institutions to then buy into that when they look at oh we've been using you know just for example gemtuzumab for this long and here's all our profit from using gemtuzumab <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're like oh no no no, no. now now that our new guidelines oh, are saying don't money. use it you're yeah. gonna lose you know some institutions can lose millions of dollars right that's why a lot of institutions don't use biosimilars right yeah. because they're gonna lose even though they're cheaper and we should be using them like they, we don't use them because of yeah, rituximab, we don't use biosimilars because, um, you know, just the, the lack of loss of profitability. So I, it's it's the system that's so... It's broken. Yeah. Yeah. That's disturbing. And I think like that's part of it is where also making patients aware of those practices is extremely important, right? Because mm-hmm. a patient should know that an institution that they're going to is using certain things based on reimbursement. But again when a patient yeah. or even us right like we mm-hmm. ask about reimbursement all the time and god if, if pyramid scheme yeah if pmt <laughs> sure is confusing is. that is even more confusing yes. like i will yes. sit waiting i'm right. still waiting three years from when i asked inquired about something about you know I, what the answer is i wonder how much practice would change if those ordering expensive tests labs medications albeit saw directly how much yep. patients are paying out of pocket for mm-hmm. everything they order. I think there are places that do that. Like, I think yeah. uh, I saw something again on Twitter, Lydia, uh, <laughs> about uh-huh. somewhere that instituted, like when you order a lab, they have like the costs associated with that lab. But, mm. you know, it's more complicated than that. I almost mm-hmm. think it's yeah. like impossible to do because yeah. of all the backhand reimbursement, et cetera. That's the thing. Things that go on that you can't yep. actually even do that in some cases, even yeah. though it would be ideal right yeah it'd be, it would be ideal if you can have price transparency everywhere like how much are how much are we charging patients how much are we buying this for how much how much kickbacks are going back to insurance companies because you know that they're they're profiting from this too oh, they're probably sure. profiting yeah. just as much as pharma right we, we're ragging on like pharmaceutical agents but like yeah, insurance not, companies are, are 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 benefiting from this too so yeah i think transparency across the board would be helpful for everybody well, we've got a lot of work to do, um, sure but do. I, I, I do think, you know, we've made some great progress and, you know, Maddie and Lydia have done an excellent job uh, getting the word out about oncology stewardship in AML. Um, and I think in the future, I'd love to see more people kind of jump on this bad wagon and think about how you can incorporate stewardship into your own practice. Um, anything else before we, we send them off with a cheers? No, that's cheers. It's great, great All work. Right. It's a pleasure having you, Lydia and, and Maddie. Thanks for having us. Cheers, y'all. Thanks for Thanks. having us. Thanks great. for coming on. Cheers. Let's uh, let's continue to drink after we uh, close this out. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Cheers. Ciao.